But let's begin just by looking at, there is a, a handout over on the, the uh, chair over yonder. And I want to begin, as we have before, by reading the Nicene Creed um, up to the point where we're going today. And we're going to be ending on the phrase, on the third day he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. That's where we'll end. So, and that's, I think that's all you've got in your sheet as well. So let's begin together. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is seen and unseen. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven. By the power of the Holy Spirit, he became incarnate from the Virgin Mary, and it was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Well, um, I am Paul, but I'm not the other Paul, the main Paul. And um, <laughs> I, I hope to at least um, hold up a candle to his floodlight that he usually sheds on uh, topics. But I want to begin talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ today. And then we'll continue it some in discussion later on. But I want to first say that I'll be distinguishing between the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead uh, that will take place at the end of the age. And though they're connected, really our goal this morning is to look at the nature and significance of Jesus' own resurrection. You know, our resurrection will be addressed, uh, no doubt, later as we consider the line from the Nicene Creed, we look for the resurrection of the dead. And in the Apostles' Creed, it reads, I believe, in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. So we'll get to that eventually, uh, sometime in the spring, I suspect. Um, but today we just try to concentrate on Jesus' own resurrection, and we'll focus on the phrase, the third day he rose again from the dead, at, from the Apostles' Creed, and from the Nicene Creed, as we read, we'll be focusing on a slightly expanded version of that that was in the Apostles' Creed. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. So we'll first look at the nature and significance of Jesus' resurrection, and then, as time permits, we'll explore the meaning of the phrase in accordance with the scriptures. I don't know how much time we'll have after we talk about um, the uh, meaning and significance of Jesus' resurrection. So he rose again. We want to capture just a little phrase. That is where we're looking. He rose again. Um, so there is a, a question that some modern scholars have put forward about the historicity of the, of the resurrection. In other words, did it really happen? Or did the, uh, the Jesus 
uh, of, of history die, and that was it. And um, then it was in the minds of the apostles uh, that uh, he, he rose, uh, was it, how does it go? He rose into the kerygma or something like that. <laughs> you know, or, or the Christ, or the, the Christ uh, rose. Basically, what um, some modern scholars have suggested is that Jesus didn't actually rise again, but that he um, continues to live on in the, the living memory of the apostles. And uh, those of you who are musical theater folks, some of you are, are familiar with the musical Godspell. And that's very much the message of that particular, I believe the lyrics were actually, the libretto was written by an Episcopal priest, I think. Um, but it ends with Jesus dying and the community going on. Well, in fact, it, um, it's more than that. Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. And there is a historical precedent for that. And we want to look just at a couple of spots in the scripture that give us evidence to that. Um, the first I want to look at, and this will be really the, the only one, is um, the, the Markan narrative in chapter 16, I believe. Oops, I'm going to find this. I'm, I'm now questioning my notes. I, I did enough revisions on my notes that I'm wondering if I've gotten this straight now. Yes, and, and it goes through, um, really, through eight is, is fine, but when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb, and they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And they said to him, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, whom, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go and tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and they fled from the tomb, trembling and astonished. Uh, astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And then, depending on how you read the end of Mark, um, they, they went and... Uh, they went and told other folks as well. Because um, we have other gospel passages, Matthew 28 and Luke 24 and John 20 through 21, that, that say the same account, that Jesus rose again and the tomb was empty. So if you were thinking um, to yourself, hypothetically, did Jesus rise from the dead? Uh, one of the, the evidences is that the tomb was, in fact, empty. And uh, then we need to recognize that he wasn't just um, a phantom or an appearance or a memory or it's not just a metaphor. 
uh, or he wasn't merely resuscitated from the dead uh, like other people who rose from the dead, Lazarus, for instance. Uh, but there was a change when he rose again, that he was raised immortal. And the scripture uh, lets us know that it was not just an apparent or an apparition or a ghost or something like that. For he appeared to them, he walked with them, he talked with them, he ate with them, and they, were, they touched him. So I'll just quickly just give you a couple of instances in Luke uh, where the two disciples are walking on the road to Emmaus, he joins them and, um, and eats with them. Now that's just another one place. Another place is where John is on the shore and somewhat despondent, and Jesus sits down and has breakfast with him, breakfast with fish, another time. Another time, Thomas, who was, had not yet seen the risen Lord, um, was all together with the apostles and said, I'm not going to believe until I, essentially, I touch him, put my hands in his wounds, and he did. And so there were some physical things that happened to let us know that this is not just a visionary experience that these apostles are having, but it is for real. One of the other things I want to do is jump to um, Paul, who saw Jesus uh, belatedly. He after all the other apostles. And this is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If if you've got a Bible and want to turn with me there, we can look at this. For I delivered to you, I'm sorry, in verse 3, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and then he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James, and to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now the significance of this list, I can go into more detail um, than I've got time for, but I just want to point out that one of the interesting things is that Paul says he appeared first to Peter. Yet we just read in Mark that, you know, well, we didn't just read in Mark. We read in John, I believe, that he appeared actually to the the ladies first. And the reason, I believe, for this is that Paul is really making a case for the real appearance of Jesus that was verifiable by the law. Uh, and the court system. And in that day, in that era, in the first century, uh, the, the witness of males were what were taken into account. That's culturally, that's the, just the way it was. And so Paul was making a case based upon what the Corinthians would have, would have understood as, oh, this is legally um, true. This is really verifiable. Uh, that there were these people who saw him. So anyway, I don't want to go on any further with that. However, I just want to reiterate that he did indeed appear in the flesh, and he did, in fact, rise again. Um, It was not just this memory. One of the things about the nature of the resurrection is also that it was the focus 
of the early church's preaching. Now, if there was any question about um, if it was important or not, we can look at the preaching that is recorded in the book of Acts. Now, there are nine places in the book of Acts where we have recorded portions of, and perhaps more, of the sermons that were preached. Uh, and most of the time we understand those sermons not to be the complete sermon that was preached, but the, the, the cliff notes of that sermon. So when we look at those, we can see what were the parts of this sermon that were most important to the apostles when they preached. And in all nine of those sermons, the resurrection gets mentioned as an important piece of the gospel. And uh, that's actually interesting because only eight of those really bring up the death of Jesus. So I, I find that fascinating um, at one level. But uh, be that as it may, the point that I want to make is that the importance to the apostles that Jesus rose from the dead was, um, it was very important to them. So, As an aside... I, I want to just mention that often in the New Testament, when we talk about Jesus' resurrection, we don't have his resurrection in the flesh as, a, as something that gets talked about. And most of the time, um, when we talk about resurrection in the flesh, it's the patristic um, writers who start talking about that. The reason for that, at least in the New Testament, is that um, flesh is usually used for the Adamic nature. That means the nature of Adam uh, is the, the mortality that we have, the fallen mortality. So it becomes significant knowing that when we read that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, we see that Jesus did, in fact, take upon our, uh, himself our own nature. But when he rose again, he rose in a, a glorified body, uh, a spiritual body, uh, Paul talks about in chapter 15. And so we see the, the bodily designation. It's only later on in the church fathers when there become some schismatic groups that want to... Um, suggest that when Jesus rose that this spiritual body was um, an amorphous visionary uh, sort of spiritual uh, spiritual entity that as a non-corporeal hmm? as a non-corporeal mm -hmm. right non-corporeal yes non-corporeal yes <laughs> uh, where they start talking about resurrection in the flesh just to emphasize that Jesus did, in fact, rise with, you know, if you went like this, your hand would stop, it would go and, and right through. It's not, he was not just a hologram, if you will. So anyway, I wanted to put that in as an aside. And I'm sorry that um, I am feeling somewhat scattered in these things this morning. So uh, bear with me. So sorry about this. I want to move from the nature which we said he was risen, really, to the significance of Jesus' resurrection. And uh, I want to think about with you what the, the resurrection of Jesus means 
for the course of our, our the, uh, course of history and for us personally as well. Now, there's an unintended consequence of the Reformation that I just want to bring up because it it's it's not that common to talk about the resurrection these days, theologically, that is, when you get into theological discussions. Most of the time, when you talk about salvation, gospel, and you get into theological discussions, the focus is on the cross. And although, cross exclusively, and although the cross is an extremely important piece of the puzzle, a big piece of the puzzle, it's not the only piece of the puzzle. And um, one of the things that has been suggested is that, uh, that the reason for this is because the Reformation was really a discussion about the meaning of justification, which is a, a cross issue. Um, think with me for a moment. Uh, every time there was a council or a movement that focused on a doctrinal issue, that particular issue became dominant in the church's thinking at that particular time until a different problem rose and there was another council to address that issue. We think about the early councils when they were defining um, the nature of, of Christ and the nature of the Trinity and defining the Trinity and those sorts of things, those became dominant in the thinking of the church at that particular time. And what I'm suggesting is that the Reformation um, was the last really big, in a sense, watershed for thinking, of, particularly for Protestant Christians. And so the focus has been on justification to large degree, especially in uh, churches that are of the, the sort of the, the Presbyterian, Lutheran, the, the early churches um, that were formed out of the Reformation. So, um, if, since it was a, a movement that focused on the cross, it, tends to, it tended to eclipse some of the other things. I, I remember reading uh, J.I. Packer's Knowing God, and there's a whole chapter on the incarnation, and he said it was the, uh, the, it was the lost doctrine. It was the doctrine that, that was really important that didn't get much attention at all. And, uh, and I think, in degree, he's right. He's, he's recognizing this same um, sort of interest in the justification um, that we have. Anyway, long story to tell, say that the modern meaning of resurrection has been condensed to basically two things in popular evangelicalism. That is, that the resurrection is proof that Jesus' sacrifice was accepted by God, and it is the proof uh, of what eternal life will look like. Essentially, that's what it, the, the resurrection means. But I'd like to suggest that there are at least 11 things that are significant about the resurrection of Jesus. And uh, there are a number of things that are significant about our own resurrection, but I'll, I'll hang tight on those. I won't share those. So the first I want to do is that the resurrection is the first upward movement after the descent of Jesus and his, identity, uh, his identification with humanity into Hades. Think of it as Jesus' identification with us in his descent, and then Jesus, our identification with him in the ascent. Does that make sense? 
But this is that, you know, Paul was telling about last week that the descent into Hades was the, it was the hinge. It was the hinge, uh, the turning point in that descent and ascent. And so that is the resurrection. It's the beginning of the exaltation, the upward ascent. Second, um, the resurrection is the one consistent piece of the preaching in the preaching of Acts. Now, I already sort of said this, but what this means is, if this is so, there's more to the resurrection, the importance of the resurrection, than is, it's normally accorded. Um, so uh, the question is that raises rises in my mind is should not the resurrection be a part of the gospel that we preach um, now I, I have to say that churches that use the ancient liturgy uh, do better at using the resurrection as a part of worship and preaching because it's written into our liturgy and so one of the great advantages that we have uh, with our Anglican liturgy is that we encounter the resurrection more than others. I remember teaching classes in the spring and uh, I used to, one of my favorite things to do was to ask students, because I was studying the resurrection, uh, um, this is the reason I did this, um, ask students what the preaching message was about on Easter Sunday. Usually about 75% of the kids, and this is at Trinity where it's, it's essentially a low church tradition, um, usually uh, Easter Sunday the preaching was on the cross and on Jesus' death and the resurrection was perhaps an, an addendum to that and now I understand, you know, in all fairness I understand that uh, Easter Sunday is when you have a lot of visitors and if you want to share the gospel you know, you're going to share um, about the death of Jesus as well but it was striking to me that some churches never mentioned the resurrection at all on Easter Sunday. Fun. Um, third, Jesus was confirmed to be the Son of God by the resurrection. And we see this in Romans 1, 4, that he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. So, he was confirmed to be the Son of God by the resurrection. And uh, number four, the resurrection is the first fruits of the new creation. Now, this is related to the, uh, the upward movement that we see of Jesus, but it's, it's a little larger than just an upward movement exaltation. It actually is the first fruits of the new creation. We see throughout the Old Testament, if you start looking, you see prophecy about the new heavens and the new earth. And, um, and this is Jesus beginning that through being the firstborn from the dead, as Colossians 1.18 says. I find it interesting when you look at 1 Corinthians 15, verses, what is it, 35 through 41, that there are creation um, allusions being talked about when Paul starts to talk about the resurrection from the dead, reiterating or emphasizing again that the resurrection is, in fact, connected to the new creation. I'll just read a little bit of this for you so you can see. 
You know, um, I'll pick it up. What kind of, what are, uh, how are the dead raised, and with what kind of body do they come? Oh, foolish person, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies, and when you sow, is not the body, um, it is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat, perhaps of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed is his own body. Not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind of flesh for birds, and another for fish, and another for heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly kind is, the, is different than the glory of the earthly kind. And he goes on, but if you look, start looking closely at this listing, you see that there's a creation order that is being alluded to, and even with the glory of the sun and the moon and the stars. And then he goes on to talk about, in 45, thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, and the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So he gets more explicit with bringing Adam into the picture. Um, uh, people have commented on this a lot. This is not uh, new news to any of you, I'm sure. Um, so we have one commentator who says the resurrection of Jesus is not merely a discrete event, but the onset of the eschatological age. That's the end time era. The dawning of the new creation. And um, the basis, another says, the basis of the sequence of thought is the unveiling of the Messiah as the image of the creator God, the firstborn, both of creation and then the new creation. Um, so, and then talks about Colossians 1 being a spectacular early Christian uh, hymn where it places Jesus' resurrection in parallel to the creation of the world, seeing it as the ground and origin of what the creator has accomplished and is now implementing, namely the reconciliation of all things to himself. So um, that does bring one question, I think, to the fore, and that is, what is the difference between the incarnation and the resurrection? If the incarnation is God coming to earth and really being identified as the, as the new Adam, or is the last Adam, or the second man, how is that different than the resurrection? And I think I'll simply just mention that um, the resurrection and the incarnation are often thought about as one event. In other words, even though time-wise they're discrete events, they can be thought of as one. That is, Christ coming um, to inaugurate this new creation that sees its beginning at the incarnation and its full um, fullness being seen uh, well uh, in the resurrection and then his ascension really um, because we have his exaltation into glory at that point and so this is another one of those pieces of the puzzle that we we can see where our salvation is being bought for us or won for us. I'll talk about that in just a moment because that is another portion of the significance of the resurrection. So, so number five is the resurrection is the, the ground of our salvation. You know, it's a package deal with the cross. So we talk about the cross and the resurrection together often. In Romans 4.25, who, 
this is talking about Jesus, was delivered up for our transgressions and raised for our justification. So you see there, Paul is using both his delivering up the death and the, the rising as part of the salvation package. Uh, and Paul thinks this is so important that he says in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is void and you're still in your sins. And so his death alone without the resurrection isn't of uh, worth, Paul says. For if we are, Romans 5 says, if we are, if we, while we're enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now we are reconciled. Um, let me read that one more time. I read that incorrectly. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Saved by his life. And that's a reference to the resurrection. So Christ died for our sins, was raised for our salvation. So it's part of the salvation package, um, the significance of the resurrection. Number six, the new life we live is by the power of the resurrection. Uh, Romans 6 makes that clear that if we're buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. And that has ethical significance for us today. Significance for how we live. That we might walk in newness of life. I'll go on. I've got uh, uh, number seven. The resurrection living is a hope-filled life. We live knowing that there is more to life than what we experience here and now. There is the future life. In other words, this is another way of saying, because Jesus rose, if we are in Christ, so will we. There's more to life than what we have here and now. And um, 1 Thessalonians uh, 4 reminds us of that hope. Um, but That's just a small portion of uh, this whole significance. Number, number eight, the resurrection is the model of the embodied living that we will enjoy for eternity. Model. Um, we will be raised to have a body like Jesus. And uh, I hope this is fairly clear, but I want to look in 1 Corinthians 15 just to make it my point even more clearly. In 42 and following, he says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. And I, so I said this, there is this connection between Jesus' resurrection and our resurrection in the future. This is one of those connections. Um, what was sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. And it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first Adam became a living being, the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. 
But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural, and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. That's that's referring to Adam. The second man is from heaven. That's referring to Jesus. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. In other words, because just like what Adam was is what we are, what Adam was like, that's the way we are. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those that are of heaven. So here we see that there will be this, we will be like him thing. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, the image of Adam, the icon of Adam, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We will be like him. Now, I want to say there are a couple of things to think about when we talk about we will be like him. Um, there, is this, there is this becoming like him that is part of our Christian walk today. And uh, that's becoming like him in character, uh, in, in thinking, in our, our living. And we, we talk about um, the imitation of Christ. And that is the imitation of Christ in both his, his in, a, in a cruciform way, that is the way of the cross, and the way of the resurrection as well. But we will be entirely like him that is not just moral character, but also um, in bodily form when he comes again and, and we rise again. And um, I think I'll stop with it right there. Otherwise, I'll start talking more about our own resurrection than, than, than Jesus' resurrection. But that is one of the significant things about the resurrection of Jesus, that it becomes our model for what the embodied living will look like. Number nine, the resurrection, both Christ's and our own, is a reason to live ethically. This is connected to the one before, but Colossians 3.1 says, if we've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And at the end of the big resurrection chapter, we see, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable. That's 1 Corinthians 15, by the way, the resurrection chapter. I, I didn't mention that. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So there is a connection between our laboring and our doing and our being that is connected to Jesus' resurrection. And Paul says in Philippians 3, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by all means possible I may attain the resurrection of the dead. So may know him in the power of his resurrection. There is the resurrection power that creates a, um, a tool for living now. Number 10, the bodily resurrection is the hope of the church, the telos of Christian living. That is when um, well, I, I what should I say about this? What's telos mean? Telos means the end. It's the end goal um, of the church. That's what we're waiting for. That's what we're waiting for. And that's connected to the last it's the anticipation 
of the second coming is in a large degree a looking forward to the final victory, that is the final defeat of death in ourselves. So that's, that's what I mean by it's the hope, it's the, it's the final end of Christian living. It's that time when all of our enemies will be defeated. Now that we are in Christ, as those who are in Christ, we are living lives where victory over the curse of Adam starts to become a reality. But it doesn't become a full reality until there is the, the resurrection from the dead of us. And um, so because of his resurrection, we can be looking forward to that victory over sin that he had um, at that particular time. And so Jesus says, I mean, Paul says about Jesus in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so that's all I'll say about that. The last one is the resurrection is a cause and focus of worship and the affirmations of the church. Um, and this started very, very early on, of course. It's, it's not a late date addition because we see the, refer, the resurrection affirmed in the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and all of the creeds that follow. And we see it in our uh, Eucharistic prayer uh, during the, I don't know which prayer it is, uh, prayer A, I think. Uh, Christ has died, Christ is risen, Christ will come again. So you see the affirmation of his resurrection as part of the things that we remember. And, and also now, this morning, we will be using a different prayer that includes we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, we await, the coming, his, we await his coming glory. I think it's interesting how the church has, we remember his death, we proclaim his resurrection, there's a certain importance placed on that, and we await his coming in glory. So those are just 11, 11 things. Some of them are slightly overlapping and interconnected, but I guess I want to just uh, demonstrate that the, the, the resurrection of Jesus is a big deal. Uh, we don't just, yes. Yep. Could you stay 11 again? Oh, 11? The resurrection has, is the cause and focus of worship in the affirmations of the church. I want to quickly uh, now just look at on the third day in accordance with the scriptures because that is part of the creed and I don't want to spend too, too much time with it, but I, I just want to mention that that is taken from um, this passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul gives a, a fourfold summary of the gospel that he received and that he's passing on. The, the, the four pieces are that he died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and, uh, and others, it goes on. But that third piece, the, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Um, I want to just consider for just a moment. Uh, this could be The question is, where are the scriptures that talk about the resurrection on the third day? That's always the question mark, I suppose, if you're going to look at this carefully. 
but ask also what the, the scriptures were. The scriptures uh, for Paul in the early church were essentially what we understand today as the Old Testament. And so if you're looking at the Old Testament and you start asking questions about the resurrection of Jesus, um, you can point to a couple of passages, but none of them seem to really clearly indicate that Jesus rose, was going to rise from the dead. And although I don't have all the answers, um, and I would like to suggest that in, in some way, the resurrection of Jesus is woven into the storyline of the Old Testament so that uh, we can see, people have looked back at Genesis 1, and 1 2, and 3 even and, and seen um, allusions to the coming resurrection of Jesus and the new creation in the tree of life, which if you follow the tree of life imagery through, um, since Jesus is referred to as the root of Jesse and um, the, the shoot and the tree references with reference to the Messiah King and then there's the tree of life in the, the final uh, new heavens and new earth. There is that connection that some people make. I think the clearest connection for me is the sacrificial or the, the binding of Isaac, the Akedah. The, in the binding of Isaac, we see a, the sacrificial death of Isaac, but we also see um, that the time between Adam's, excuse me, the Abraham's hearing of this going on a journey and the time when Isaac was to be actually sacrificed was three days. It was a three-day period. And Hebrews chapter 11 in the, the great roll call of faith uh, reminds us that the early church interpreted Isaac's deliverance as a resurrection type so that Abraham believed God and he received his son back as one had, who had come back from the dead. So that's another, if you, and if we start looking at that story, we can see that trajectory of um, Isaac the, and uh, being sacrificed, the innocent, and being delivered. It touches down in the Passover story of the Exodus. And again in Isaiah 53 with the suffering servant, which, which um, talks about the suffering servant who suffered, but then was exalted and appears. And so we have, it touches down in several spots. And though there's no you know, one clear prophecy that talks about um, the third day, we see that uh, it's woven throughout the Old Testament narrative. And then Jesus himself makes a few connections to uh, the Old Testament. In, in Matthew 12, 40, he, he talks about Jonah and his experience with the, the great fish being swallowed and three days later um, being um, put back on dry land as a type of the resurrection or actually his death, burial, the three-day period and his resurrection. And so there are a couple of, couple of Old Testament connections. But of course we know that Jesus clearly taught that he would um, be dead for three days and then rise again in Matthew 16, 21, Mark 8, 31, and Luke 9, 22. Uh, so that's where we see those connections that Jesus made it explicit 
that this is, this is what's going to happen. And he, understand it, he understood it as connected to the Old Testament himself. So I just wanted to um, mention that um, in, the, in reference to the accordance to the scriptures, just to, to touch on that. And perhaps Paul next week could double back on that if he has seen more things to say that would be helpful for us all. But I want to uh, be done now chatting and have us break into groups and talk about some of the, um, the points that you found unclear or interesting or, or, or perhaps in, in need of more discussion. And we have about 10 minutes-ish.